Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today I'm very honored to have as my special guest Roy Forbes. Known in the 1970s as BIM, Roy is an iconic Canadian folk singer with a distinct and unmistakable voice. He's also a record producer, film composer, songwriting mentor, a radio host at CBC and CKUA, and a popular music historian of uh, 78 RPM Records. So you must have realized at an early age you had a very unique sounding voice. Oh, well, I realized it and I was told... (laughs) Yeah. In no uncertain yeah. terms. Uh, but that didn't stop me. And when I look back, you know, people uh, felt weird about Billie Holiday's voice. And some people felt weird about Hank Williams's voice. So I'm keeping yeah. good company. Yes. Well, well, it's, it, I mean, obviously in, in the music business, you want to have your mark. You want to have that distinctive thing about you that people go, oh, yeah, it's that guy. And with you, you had that right away. Of course, with your with your nickname Bim, and then that unique sounding voice, it was a hook that people could remember because I I knew exactly who you were. I was a teenager in the seventies, growing up, and we all knew who Bim was, and we knew your voice. And as soon as you open your mouth, everyone knows who that is. Yeah, which is a blessing, right, for a for an entertainer. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's um, it, it you know it paid the bills around here for over fifty years. So <laughs> what can I say? By the age of 15, I was making money playing with our band, The Crystal Ship. So really, uh, even though I was in high school, I started making money playing music when I was 15. And uh, it just kept going from there. There were times when it almost fell apart, and I made sure it didn't. And Mm -hmm. uh, when the time came to uh, leave, you know, I graduated, and uh, I had met a band called Spring, who you might remember, uh, Terry mm-hmm. Frewer and Doug Edwards, Cat Hendricks, Bob Buckley. They came through yeah. town, I guess it would be uh, near the end of grade 12, so February 71. And uh, their manager, Roger Schiffer, were traveling with them. Imagine, Dan, traveling uh, in northern BC, pushing your 45. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he had a yeah. record called Country Boy Named Willie. Anyway... I opened for them, and I had just written a batch of new songs a couple of weeks before because they were tumbling out of me by that time. And they loved it so much that they invited me to join them in Fort St. John the next night to open for them in Fort St. John. And uh, Roger gave me his phone number, and um, I kept in touch. And once uh, school was over with, I was out of Dawson Creek down to mm. Vancouver, to living in a hippie house. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have that avenue to something with Roger and with the guys from Spring. Uh, you know, that summer I wrote a song for a band called Skylark, which you mm-hmm. probably know had David Foster and B.J. Cook and Donnie yeah. Gerard. Yeah. Uh, they didn't record it, but uh, I wrote it specifically for them. They learned it. I sang it with them. And, uh, you know, it was uh, on from there. And before I know it, I'm touring with John Lee Hooker. Well, I, read, wow. I knew about John Lee Hooker, but there I am riding around in a station wagon with John Lee. 
And uh, it was it was just a a kaleidoscopic collage of all kinds of things coming at me, and I was loving it. I had left the band thing behind in my mind and had become a singer-songwriter. If it was good enough for Neil Young, I could do it too. Well, and and it's a good uh, parallel to think of Neil Young because he did basically just about everything. I read his book too, right? And he would joined different bands and did different things and played acoustic, played in the band, did everything. Basically. There are similarities right. between Neil and I, yeah. actually, yeah. Uh, in that regard. And in fact, uh, one of the more mind-blowing things and pivotal things that happened to me in early 1971, I saw his show at the Queen Elizabeth Theater. Mm. Uh, John Hammond opened, and then Neil was there acoustic. And uh, between the two of them, they cemented it for me, especially Neil, because yeah. he uh, he sat there. He told us funny stories. He played a song he'd written in the hotel the night before. Can't remember which one. But uh, right. seeing him, I was still in school then, but seeing Neil, it really galvanized me. And I thought, yeah, I'm doing this. What happened when I came to Vancouver was that... Uh, a, there were used record stores, Rohan's, places like that. And B, there was this big get back to the roots thing going on. So mm. I was out, I was out buying, uh, you know, Blues LP by Buckle White. And I mentioned Mississippi Fred McDowell, Robert Johnson, of course. Uh, he wasn't as accessible as Mississippi Fred McDowell at that time. And also I discovered that I actually did like country music, which I'd grown up with and had cast aside as a teenager. And hmm. I started collecting 78s in 1972, and the first six I bought for a dime apiece, it was like Hank Williams, Webb Pierce, yeah. Ernest Tubb, Carter Family, etc. And yeah. uh, that opened me up to country music again. And that's around the time, I guess 73 is around the time I fiddling around with slide guitar and started yeah. to play so lonesome I could cry. And, uh, yeah. of course, that has been uh, – some people think I wrote it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I wish I had. Yeah, well, you did a nice version, and, and I was going to ask you about that because the slide is really prominent on there, and, and then there's lots of actually good slide parts in lots of your songs. Yeah, I, I, I started playing slide when I heard Mississippi Fred McDowell, and yeah. I discovered open tuning, and I thought, oh, yeah. that's how they're doing it. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I think I tried to do a tally once of how many albums have slide guitar. Almost all of them. There might be yeah. a couple that don't, but most, almost all of them have slide in one way or another, acoustic and electric. I, I just like uh, it, it close to the human voice, you know. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you can't quite do that on a fretted instrument. You know, I had met Claire and Bill uh, from Chilliwack when I opened for them in late 71. I did some shows okay. in the prairies with them. And uh, Claire and I kind of kind of kept in touch. And, you know, one thing led to another. He was producing the CBC Great Canadian Gold Rush show. Uh, he had me in for a session, and the stuff we did ended up being demos for uh, the Kid Full of Dreams album, which he ended up producing. So it was good that you were able to connect with those guys because you you seemed to be able to connect with them and and 
help your career move forward, I guess, is is the way that it worked for you, well, right? Getting the Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, but uh it you know, we connected in uh Saskatoon and Regina. I remember Claire saying, Ooh, you could orchestrate your guitar parts and I'm thinking, What the hell does that mean? <laughs> But uh, anyway, Claire and I ended up uh, working together on uh, the first two albums, Kid Full of Dreams for Casino and then Rain Check on Misery. And uh, he actually, on the new album, Edge of Blue, which was released in 2020, he plays on the last cut on Rumble Strip. Yeah, I did see that. uh, Yeah, yeah. good. And most of that is the first take, by the way. He's so good. He mentored me, and um, he he's always done good stuff for me. You know, when he produced albums for people who maybe needed songs, he's always said, check out Roy. And, you know, um, nice. Valdi covered two. Uh, Matt Minglewood did Me and My Baby. So anyway, Claire, Claire, you know, he's just a great guy and a good friend. And um, yeah. when UHF got together, he, he came in and co-produced. Or he kind oh, of nice. produced it, and we, yeah. you know, took co-producer. So it, he's, um, yeah, he ch- he's a touchstone. When I did some early recording with uh, Terry McManus at Canbase in 1972, he wanted to approach it that way. So this one song, it was just going to be acoustic. I just sat and played the guitar and pretended I was singing, and then I had mm. to go in and do the vocal, and it just and no click track, of course, right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it just felt weird. So I was uh, forceful enough to almost insist that uh, that I do the vocals live. And even Can't Catch Me, where we I did redo the vocal on that, but when I redid it, I played guitar as well. So it was still hmm. a performance. Yeah. Today I'm very honored to have as my guest guitarist Greg Fraser. Uh, Greg is perhaps best known for his time in the successful 80s Canadian band Brighton Rock. They released a few albums and videos, uh, along with extensive touring, all of which we'll get into in our discussion. When I first wanted to play guitar, you know, of course, I didn't know anything. So it's like, well, you got to go take guitar lessons. So mm-hmm. then, you know, so you start taking a few lessons at the beginning. So they, 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 they teach you the basic chords, you know, a D and a G and an A and an E. But when it comes time to make do songs, they're not teaching you what you really want to learn. They, you know, they're teaching mm-hmm. you "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" and you know, yeah, of course, yeah, and "House of the Rising Sun." That was like, that was like, ooh, better watch out. That's oh yeah, you know, you look out on that. <laughs> but the, you know, the stuff that I wanted to learn is like, can you can you show me how to do this? Well, you're not. You have to learn the basics first, and then I just got so frustrated after a while that I just started trying to learn myself. You know, so I'd go watch yeah. other musicians and. Uh, I knew a couple of guys that were a lot better than me. So I'd literally just sit in front of them and watch them play. And then, you know, I'd go home and just, and just chip away at it. I'd spend hours playing my guitar. And what I would do a lot of times I'd put the FM radio on and I'd just try to play along with it. Like, you know, you can't, you can't stop it. You can't rewind it. You have to literally, you're, you know, you're, you're on the fly. So no matter what was on, I would try to play along with it. You know, obviously I was bad at first, but then after a while you start to pick up stuff and pick up what, key, what keys are and stuff like that. So, you know, Tom Petty would come on my Bob Seger and whatever, yeah. you know, I've just kind of try to, and then gradually you just start to, to learn that way. So I would say, you know, 90% of what I know, I basically learned on my own. I started around when I was about 10 and then was about 12 years old. 
we played in front of our school, me and another guy, it would like a, like a talent show and stuff like that. And yeah. uh, so I played guitar and he kind of sang and stuff. And I forget what we were playing, but I remember the responses like, like when we finished, it's like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it totally, you're hugged. <laughs> what the heck? And it, it was such a, like, it was such a, like you mentioned, a defining moment, but I never thought, yeah. Well, I want to do this for the rest of my life. But uh, so then you, st- you know, you join your first band and you, you know, you go play a high school or something like that. And then, you know, everybody loves it and stuff. And then when I was, when I was about 15 and there was yeah. a, there was a bar band that was looking for another guitar player. So these guys are already in their, you know, early twenties and a couple of guys in their late teens, like 19 and 20, whatever. So they came and see me and I joined their band to do a, the first gig was new year's Eve in Welland, oh, wow. Ontario. Yeah. So it's just craziness. <laughs> and I, I loved it. I was like, Oh my God, this is awesome. You know, I'm playing for older people, adults, and they really, yeah. uh, they love what we're doing. And then yeah. uh, when I was 16, there was a full-time touring band and they needed a, a new guitar player. And uh, the, the people were saying, you got to check this guy out, check this guy out. So then uh, they check me out, and I I literally quit school. All I've got to this day is, is a grade ten education. I went on the road when I was sixteen wow. to become a full time musician, and pretty much never looked back. You know, until the time I was about wow. thirty five years old. You know, in between yeah. bands, I get a, a job here and there just to you know to, to yeah. survive until the next band would kick off. And but uh, yeah, yeah, so that was it. I was pretty much a full time musician since I was sixteen years old. Well, that's funny because the funny thing is, I mean, going on the road with a band, that is school. You learn a heck of a lot of things. Well, that's the thing, you know, like when you're a a new up and coming band, like you you don't really have a a lot of power, which means you're not going to make any money. You're you're, you're literally scraping by just to survive, you know, I mean, I might, yeah, I think they offered me a hundred bucks a week or something. Oh, we were getting like $30 a week. <laughs> I was literally eating mini raviolis. That was my, that was my <laughs> favorite food every day. Like, can good man, eat? good man. Yeah. So that was your school. And then, and then when you weren't, you know, when I wasn't playing on the road and stuff, I'd be watching like in Niagara Falls, we had a really cool club called uncle Sam's back then. So that's where the recording yeah. acts would play that you would see yeah. Max Webster, you would see Saga, you would see these, you know, Trooper and yeah. these other bands coming in. And so that was my education too. I mean, I would yeah. literally just stand there and just watch these guys. And it's like, well, okay, here's what it takes. These guys are pros and that's what I want to be. So I'd literally study their stage moves, study like, you know, their lighting design, studying their, what clothes they're wearing, how they move on stage, their interaction yeah. with the crowd, you know, uh, their stage presence. Uh, and I go back cool. to the soundboard and try to figure out like, how come it sounds way better than a we sound? Like, what's the deal? You know, I try to learn from the yeah. sound man and, Oh, there's a whole learning process that, you know, that it can only help yeah. you. And I tried, I was like a sponge. I wanted to know it all. And that's yeah. what I did. And, uh, and like you said, you know, going on the road, that's, that is your school. I mean, yeah. you're going to find out pretty quickly if you're, if you're made, uh, if you're, if you're the right person for this type of work, cause it's not for everybody. You know, you have people see you on stage and you're smiling and everybody's cheering. So, Oh, that's the life. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great for that one hour or two hours, but Yes. Everything else can can really suck sometimes, man. Some of those long yeah. drives, the, the 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 worst hideous hotels and motels you would ever imagine. <laughs> We're staying in there and you know just and starving yeah. and so it's it's not all that is like cracked up to be, but uh, uh if you ask me if I would do do it all again, I would do it all again in a heartbeat. 
Well, and that's that's the, the overriding point, I think, right? You're, you're, you're training yourself to do something that you want to do. So you're learning about camaraderie. You're learning about polishing up the sound. You're learning about surviving, getting gigs, and, and of course, monetizing your, your music because you're not now you're not in your bedroom practicing your guitar. You got to make money from it. You got to at least make something and you got to survive. So that's a great education. I, I went through that myself, not not quite to the extent you did because I waited till a bit later, but uh learn those lessons and the long drives and, and the price you pay, but you have to love it and you're pursuing something you love. It's everything. That's yeah. You hit it right in the nose. If you don't love it, you're not going to survive. And yeah. you know, I've been doing it long enough where I've seen guys that have the intentions that they, Oh yeah, I want to do this. And then they get on the road and they, and they don't have the comforts of home anymore, you yeah. know? And then, then you see the, that it just wears on them. It's like, Oh, this guy's, he's not a lifer. And it's, no, it's hard right. to find the lifers, you know, because they're, yeah. that are willing to, to put up the necessary bullshit that you will encounter. You got to know how yeah. to overcome that stuff and go, okay, there's another little bump in the road. And, uh, it's, it's, it's part of the gig. It's not, and will never be smooth sailing all the time. You're always going to have yeah. these roadblocks in front of you. And it's, it's, you know, the people that can persevere and get over those humps, are the ones that that are there for the longevity, you know, and the ones that. Well, no, that's a great point because there's lots of guys, and I'm sure you know as well. They said, "Well, I love playing the music. I just got tired of the BS." And I'm like, "Well, then you have to quit. Yeah, if you can't put up with that, you're no. not going to survive in this business." And it's serious BS, man. I mean, yeah, like, oh yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, like yep. the agents and the managers and the lawyers and like the, the, oh, yeah. the lying and cheating and backstabbing. <laughs> it's just relentless, you know, <laughs> but if you don't, yeah. if you're in it to make money and money only, well, I wouldn't suggest being in this job, you know, cause that comes yeah. and goes, but if you, yeah. you got to love what you're doing, you know, and I still love it, man. I'll never yeah, stop for you. Good for you. No, I'd say I feel the same way. And I've been able to, you know, my path was a little different because I came out to the West Coast and stayed here, but I've made a living for four decades. So I'm very thankful for that. Awesome. You know, and it's, I didn't want to do anything else. That's my, my keyboard player. And I talked about that. He goes, well, I don't really want to do anything else. And I'm like, well, neither do I. He well, goes, okay, well, let's work it out. <laughs> that's it. So then you got your band together that what became uh, Brighton Rock was originally called Heart Attack, right? You guys got together, you formed in basically in Niagara Falls? Yeah, based around Niagara Falls and Hamilton. Uh, right. My bass player, Stevie Screebs, to this day, I know, I know him since I was 15 years old. He still lives 10 yep. minutes from my house. We started the band cool. and, and we went through different singers and keyboard players and drummers and stuff like that. And then uh, once we got a band that, that looked like it was it was working for a long period of time. We we got a record deal, and but we were still called Heart Attack when we got the record deal. But uh, right. we got signed to Warner Electro Atlantic, which is called WEA W E A. And uh, they well said known, yeah. in in, in uh, Warner in the states has another band called Jack Mac and the Heart Attack. So we can't. You guys are gonna have to mm. change your name. We can't have two Heart Attacks. And we're going. Oh no! You know what are we gonna do? So then you know we gradually. We tossed names around and, and Brighton Rock became our name. And uh, yeah, okay. so we signed our deal basically, I think it would have been about 1985 is when we okay. signed it. Okay, interesting. I was wondering about the name because that's, a, of course, a famous book by Graham Greene. Yep. Uh, Stinger was reading that book. That's that's why that name kind of. And there's a city in Ontario you, when we would be gigging called Brighton, Ontario. And the yep, one time right. we're, my, we're driving. My grandpa was born there. Is that right? Look at that. Yeah, eh? my grandpa was born in Brighton, Ontario. Yep. We're passing through Brighton. He's reading the book Brighton Rock. He goes, "Look at that, <laughs> Brighton Rock!" Right, and then that's it's and, made in heaven. Yeah. 
Yeah. So then when we're, you know, looking for names, somebody mentioned that name and then, because every name is always like, ah, I don't know, ah, I don't know, ah, cliche. Then when they somebody said Brighton Rock, we went, that's actually pretty cool, you know. George Belanger is best known as lead singer for the iconic 80s band Harlequin. Their albums and radio hits are an essential part of the Canadian musical landscape. So I look forward to what he has to share about his musical journey. In the mid-70s, you ended up, you know, I guess you were playing in club bands and stuff, and you ended up joining Harlequin. How did that happen? Because you, you were in Winnipeg, and you ended up in Toronto somehow? Well, I had just uh, we had just broken up with my band. We kind of broke up because it was getting uh, hard, and I was uh, actually on my way. I was going to fly to uh, England with my guitar player at the time, Bob White. Mm. Um, and uh, we were going to go and you know seek our fame and fortune. When the phone rang, was my agent from Hungary Agencies, Frank Weiner. And he said, George is a band that wants you to audition for them. I said, well, okay, from where? He says, well, they're in Toronto. I said, okay, what do they call me? He says, Harlequin. Never yeah. heard of them. Yeah. Okay. So I flew out to Toronto, and um, uh, they uh, told me that someone would meet me. And as I... Uh, I was standing there with my luggage waiting by the <laughs> at the airport, and this guy approached me, and he was about uh, oh, I want to say six feet tall, probably about three hundred fifty pounds. He had mm -hmm. long hair. He had a goatee. So he grabs my bag, and says, "Follow me." So I, I follow him. They got a fifteen passenger van there, and I, I jump into the the uh, you know shotgun seat, mm -hmm. and we start driving around, and he's uh, telling me all about. Uh, the band and this and that and I noticed we're getting further and further down the road and I'd been to Toronto before and I said hey looks like we're leaving town he said well we are I said where are we going oh. he says Kirkland Lake oh. <laughs> what that wasn't so, exactly Toronto no yeah. no so we showed up in Kirkland Lake we it was you know a picture I'm sure if you've played in hotels you know the oh, old yeah. hotels that were built in the 30s and 40s you know, it was one of those hotels, you know, the iconic one yep. in every little town. Many, many times. Uh, yeah. yeah, with the rooms above it, you know. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the crummy rooms. So well, I, I show up and um, I meet the boys. And uh, right away, though, I knew um, uh, the bass player was named Ralph James. And Ralph mm -hmm. James is now, you know, a big shot in the industry. He's, a, he's, a, he's an agent mm -hmm. at APA. I caught on right away that he was driven. And he had a plan, and he, he was he had lots of energy and a gift of the gap, you know. Yep. And he sucked me right in, okay. <laughs> and because uh, I was ready to go, I went, you know, I don't need this, you know. Like yeah. here we are in Kirkland Lake, you know, staying in a crummy hotel room. Yeah. And uh, so I said, you, well, here, do you have any original material? And they said, yes, we do. So I said, okay, okay. well, I want to hear that first because we had the run of the place. There was nobody, you know. Yep. It was in October. So in the afternoon, we did some rehearsing and that. And in the evening, no one showed up. So we had the place to ourselves. And they, they had a song, a couple of original songs. And I we, we kind of ran them over, <laughs> so yep. to speak. Uh, and uh, it sounded pretty good. And I thought, well, what the hell? Yep. We took a break. We went out to the uh, where the TV was because the TV was up on the wall, a little small, little monitor. Yep. And uh, this fellow came walking in the room. And uh, he's dressed in his uh, fatigues, you know, like he had, uh, he was duck hunting. Mm. So he had all this stuff on. And he sat down at the table, watched the game with us. And uh, he said, you know, I was listening to you guys from outside. And Ralph says, okay, what did you think? He says, you guys, don't, these guys sound pretty good. 
Hmm. And he says, okay, are you, uh, you know, what qualifies you to make a judgment? <laughs> he, says, yeah. he says, well, my name is Ralph Jolivet. I own an agency in Toronto. I'm here oh. on duck hunting. Cool. <laughs> so it was just like, he fell right out of the sky, you know. That's rather fortuitous. To, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And Ralph kind of started schmoozing him, and one thing led to another, and I, oh, cool. I joined the band, and I never looked back. Obviously, Harlequin was a motivated band, and you had some tunes and stuff, and, but you, you slogged it out. You kept just pounding away at that, but you landed a record deal with CBS Epic. Yes. Well, we were grinding and grinding, and uh, we, we decided to, uh, well, Ralph had the idea of, you know, uh, hitting the uh, Toronto area because that's where everything was. That right. was, uh, you know, the, the hub. So uh, we played all over the place and trying to get ourselves uh, recognized. And uh, the way we did get uh, recognized, you know, this is a, a famous story in the Harlequin uh, camp, is that we were playing um, in what used to be, um, uh, we were playing upstairs at the Chimney, and downstairs was the gas works. I don't hmm. know if you're old enough to know that. Yeah, but, I'm uh, familiar. I've never been there, but um, oh, it was yeah. quite the place. It yeah. was uh, everybody played there, you know. And uh, of course, there was a band at the time uh, that was very, very big uh, called Gatto. Greg Gatto of course, was yeah. the uh, yeah. bass player and singer, and they were hot. They were just happening. So uh, it was packed down there, and we were playing upstairs in the chimney to uh, I, the bartender. And two waitresses, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and and these two uh, guys came wandering in, and they sat down, and we were playing our stuff. And we, you know, what the hell? We're going to rehearse, you know. So we were yeah. playing our all our own material because at the time people would say, uh, you know, play the hits. Don't bother with that original crap. Nobody wants to hear that, you know. So we would always, I would always like, you know, here's a here's a song, uh, Led Zeppelin. It's a let. They haven't released it yet. This yeah. is uh, I happen to hear this on the radio or or. or somehow and we played song right yeah. so we'd always bullshit our way through stuff but uh so we're playing all the stuff and the guy pulls me aside after the show and he says uh, was that all original material and i said yeah oh you guys are pretty good he says well i happen to be working with jack douglas uh waterfront productions we're starting a uh, canadian subsidiary and uh be very interested in hearing uh uh, your material on tape. Do you have any tapes? So that's how it went. And then he cool. tells me, uh, you're, the only reason we're here is we were trying to get into the Gatto show downstairs <laughs> and we couldn't get in. We just <laughs> happened to wander up here and, and that's how it happened. How quickly did that go from that to you got your Victim of a Song album coming out? Okay, so we're grinding it out with them and uh, we ran into a fellow. Um, he had a recording studio. Uh, he had a, um, a recording label. And he had a pressing plant. Okay. And uh, okay, Gary Salter was his name. It was yeah. called Global Music. Okay. And uh, one of the guys that was uh, working with Jack uh, decided to uh, talk to this guy and let him hear our stuff, mm -hmm. and so which he did. So we, we met him in his office, and I'll never forget uh, when he uh, he said, uh, "You guys, I think you've got some stuff here, and I'm going to record it." And we're going to give you a deal. I'm going to give you a deal. Hmm. And, uh, but this is how it's going to work. And he took out a piece of paper and uh, full scap, and he wrote, quickly wrote something on it. He turned around, and I looked down and said, I get everything. Oh. <laughs> so your basic standard record deal, I guess, at that time, right? Well, yeah, at least he was honest about it. That's what I said. You know, he was... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Ben, you know, bend over sign here here's a document though 45 pages you know like and yeah. you know and uh, we're gonna do this we're gonna do that but anyway so 
you know, we knew what we were walking into, and uh, we discussed it amongst ourselves. And we said, well, you know, we've been slogging it out here. Well, it seemed like a long time then. You know, when you're younger, yeah. you know, two years seems like an eternity, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been slogging it out for about that length of time, and nothing was happening. And here's this guy offering us an album. So we did it, and uh, we were half, we were about, the, well, more than halfway through, three quarters of the way through the process, because now we're going down to mastering and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I was sharing a room with Ralph at downtown Toronto, and uh, the phone rang, and it was the secretary. His secretary called, and she said, uh, "You guys get better get down here because they're foreclosing on this place." And they're going to lock the doors, and all our gear was in there too, oh. right? So now we, you know, you can't open the doors. We've got to play, you know. We yeah. got to sustain life. So, you know, we ran down there, and we got the truck, and we unloaded all our stuff. And the guy's telling us, "Here, take this, take that." Yeah. You know, you try to get your masters out, get your masters out. You know, oh. so we grabbed our masters and we grabbed all our crap, and uh, went back to the hotel and parked there and a couple days later the phone rang and it was somebody from cbs saying hey hey you have some of our property and i went oh. what do you mean i said well you know he defaulted to us and as it turns out good old gary he, he was actually uh bootlegging making copies in his pressing plant of you know oh okay <laughs> albums that were in his like hmm. michael jackson or whatever and okay. bootlegging them. oh know? wow <laughs> Because he had a pressing yeah. plant, so, he, so why not? Oh, <laughs> he was in deep doo too. So yeah. Uh, yeah. now we were we were basically their chattel, you know. Yeah. And uh, so they said, we said, now, how does this work? Uh, it's going to work the same way as it did with Gary Salter. <laughs> okay. So so basically everything that he owned, now they owned. That's right. Right. Okay. Including us. So, oh, I got you. Okay. Uh, we did the first album, and uh, that was in the, you know, that was basically all yep. done already. We just finished it up. Uh, do some mastering and uh, put it out there and uh, once you know it went gold. Today I'm very honored to have as my guest Andres Del Castillo. Andres is uh, best known as lead vocalist in the successful 80s band 8 Seconds and they released a few albums and videos with extensive touring, all of which we'll get into uh, in our discussion. My father was a diplomat actually. We're a I, uh, I, I was a Venezuelan. I'm now a Canadian citizen, but my dad was a Venezuelan uh, a diplomat. So we did a lot of traveling around the world. I was actually born in uh, in Rio de Janeiro in uh, in Brazil. Oh wow! And I have um, okay. five siblings, and they're all kind of sort of born in different places, depending on where my dad was posted. So he was finally posted in the, in the late, very late '60s uh, to Ottawa. Uh, being the nation's capital, and um, and I've been here since. I mean, I've traveled, but no, oh, good. That's where I've been. So was he stationed in Ottawa for a lot of years? I assume, and then I guess if he moved on, you stayed. Well, basically, he he passed away uh, in the, in the uh, in the late seventies, and um, so I was still relatively young. And my mother decided to keep us uh, in Canada as opposed to going back home to Venezuela, and then. Um, you know, basically through uh, just through the process of being here uh, at an ex- for an extended time, we all became Canadian citizens. I grew up because of my older brother. I grew up listening to progressive rock, so uh, you know I was a huge Genesis and Yes fan. And, um, yeah, sure. And w- so you know, learning that stuff in particular was 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 really challenging. Um, yeah. But um, but that uh, that was an essential part of of, of I think our sort of uh, musical growth that you know um 
you're able to learn tunes like that. You're, you're able to see how they come together. You understand different time signatures, key changes, uh, um, you know, chord progressions are sort of, you know, a, a little uh, off the beaten road. And all that stuff comes back to you. You know, it's all at the subconscious level and it comes back to you when we start composing. You know, there's a great quote by uh, Brian Eno, um, producer and um, former member of Roxy Music. You know, he, uh, he said that uh, there's no such thing as absolute originality. Uh, what happens is you, you start creating something and, and subconsciously you're bringing up or you're bringing from the subconscious all sorts of influences that you want to replicate. The subconscious wants to, you know, replicate perfectly, but, but you fail at it and, and, and it goes in a different direction. Um, and that's where originality comes from. It's, it's something that you've kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, bastardize in trying to recreate, but you've gone off, you know, in a different tangent and you've come up with something that sounds really cool. So I have to ask you about the eight seconds reference, because I, when I was doing the research for this interview, there's, there's a couple other, at least two other bands I found that are called eight seconds. And of course, one would be a country band, obviously that would be a sort of an obvious connection. What, what was the eight seconds reference to the rodeo? Um, well, and, um, I, you know what, it's funny cause it, we, we were asked that quite a bit, obviously on the road. Um, no, it wasn't the rodeo. We hadn't even heard of that. We we're trying to think of a name and, uh, Andy Warhol had once said, um, that, uh, it, you know, it, when he was around, you know, this would have been in the early seventies, um, that in the future, um, uh, everybody would have 15 minutes of fame, you know, and that he was mm -hmm. kind of making a comment about just the, uh, the fleeting, uh, fleeting, uh, uh, aspect, uh, the quality of, of, um, of popularity. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of toss that around. Well, that's kind of interesting in 15 minutes. And we thought, well, you know, let's break it down. Let's make it a little more interesting. So, uh, we were thinking of somewhere between five and 10 seconds and okay. it's eight seconds, uh, eight seconds, one out. Well, cause when I called up the name and then a country band came up, I thought, well, that's cause there's a line in a George Strait song, Amarillo, right? I'll be looking for eight when they pull that gate. Because oh, it's eight yeah. seconds is you got to ride for eight seconds on the bull, right? <laughs> so I, I could see a country band picking that name for sure. But then I thought to myself, well, it's kind of odd. You've got a recording act that was quite well known in the 80s. And you just sort of co-opt that name. It just seemed, it seemed a bit odd to me. I'd give them the benefit of the doubt. They probably never heard of us. I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of us, but, uh, you know, I, I, it does kind of make sense. A country band referring to that, you know, that length of time. Um, you know, yeah. if, if you want something a little off color, actually, so somebody had kind of suggested to this. We, we heard that there was a, there was a book, uh, written in the seventies, uh, called seven seconds. Um, and it was oh. written, um, by, by a woman and, and it was kind of a, uh, a book on sexuality and supposedly the length of the, uh, the female orgasm was, uh, oh, okay. it was, was yeah. timed out at seven seconds, roughly. <laughs> so we'd tell people that, uh, that we chose eight seconds because that's the length of the faked female yeah. orgasm. <laughs> there you go. That's funny. You were like a synth pop progressive group, I guess, is the way you've been described. But when I listen to your music, it's, it's you know, I don't want to compare directly, but it's it's like Duran Duran-ish, you know, Flock of Seagulls, The Spoons, that sort of, in that sort of genre. Is that what you were looking for? Well, you know what? It's, it, I, I suppose that's that's uh, because of the era that we came from and uh, and the uh, producers that um, uh, that we worked with. Well, in particular, Rupert Hine, he produced The the Fix, which is one of our favorite album uh, bands. Yeah, great. Uh, and and uh, we were huge fans and, and, and definitely we came out of that era. 
Um, so the, the, the comparisons are definitely made all the time. We, we had sort of loftier ambitions, to be honest with you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, musically, at least in our minds, we, because we were, uh, you know, prog rock fans, we did sort of want to sort of evolve into something that was a little more interesting and musical and deal with, you know, sort of loftier subjects, uh, as, uh, right. you know, from a motif, uh, perspective, not that those bands didn't, uh, I'm sure they did, but, um, um, we definitely wanted eventually to sort of uh, get into that that style a little more. It wasn't, you know, in the 80s, you know, prog rock had basically died, but we were hanging on, yeah. you know, <laughs> for dear life. Anyways. No, I hear what you're saying, because because a lot of times what happens is you, you just put out the sort of pablum, right? Here's the flavor of the week. It's this sound. We want you to have this sound and put out these songs and keep them simple and and you're kind of like, well, yeah, but I would like to do something a little more interesting and break break the sort of, you know, we're within a sh- certain genre, but we can stretch a lot in that genre, right? We, Rather than just- absolutely, yeah. And I think all music m- musicians have that. It, interestingly enough, we we really weren't uh, that constrained by the record company. Uh, we were signed to the Polygram uh, uh, New York, um, yeah. and our AR man, or the you know the guy that basically pushed to have us signed. Um, was a guy called Derek Schulman. And uh, Derek Schulman was actually the lead singer of a band called Gentle Giant from the 70s. Okay. A, yeah. a, a serious prog rock band. So for us, you know, he had heard our demos and he knew what we were doing. Um, I, I, I think definitely once you sign to a record label, though, of course, you know, it's a business and what they want to do is sell albums. We had written a song Absolutely. called These Two and It's Dangerous that um that uh, everybody felt um you know could uh, could climb the charts so you know yeah. you you go with the winner in that perspective uh, you know we yeah. we that was our single and that's you know that's what you know became ultimately our our signature song our most popular song so you're you're yeah. you know you're kind of labeled by that and um we could, we wrote that, no question about it. You know, that's, you know, yeah. that's well, the yeah, company yeah. felt that that was a song that, uh, that would move us. And so you'd be kind of go with the flow. So l- looking at your timeline here, it's interesting because your, your first, uh, one of your first originals, where's Beulah, you won a, uh, the, a contest, like a homegrown contest. A lot of times that was kind of a blessing and a curse, you know what I mean? Like entering a contest, but for you, it seemed to work out. It seemed to be a blessing because it got you a platform. Yeah, no, absolutely a blessing. Um, you know, we're from Ottawa and, and you know, we, we were we were writing a lot of music and sending out demos to the record companies and, and absolutely nothing was catching. Um, mm. So, you know, winning that contest with Where's Beulah, more than a platform, what it did is it gave us a validation because okay. you having been in bands, you know, a, a, a band's greatest enemy is apathy. You know, where all of a sudden, you know, you have four or three or four or five guys or more. And, you know, at the beginning, they're all striving for the same thing. And then when all of a sudden, you know, five people show up at your show, um, it can get discouraging, right? By winning that contest, uh, like I said, it was a bit of a validation that we were on the right path. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't get a record deal till close to two years afterwards. Um, but um, but for us, it was okay. Let's keep going, and, and we yeah. actually developed a game plan. Uh, we we developed a timeline of uh, milestones that we wanted to hit. Um, so 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 that in and of itself, I think was uh, was really important to us. Um, and and because of it, you know, some people took interest. There's no question about it. All of a sudden, you know, we were we were putting uh, bums in seats when we played live, and yeah. um, 
that's a, that's a big indicator, I'd say, for for record companies, right? Does does this unsigned band is unsigned band have a following? Um, you yeah. know, and that will that following translate to other areas? Uh, you know, all, all those metrics I think are pretty important to a well, company. Certainly, they want to scale it. They say, well, the people around Ottawa like these guys. Can we scale that to the country? Can we scale that to the world? And then, of course, you winning that prize, you got the production of a video, right? Which you got on Much Music and MTV on the on the Basement Tapes show. Is that? Yeah, that must have been a huge platform for you guys, right? It, it was. It was because you know you're talking about scalability, and um, you know, and that was in in of itself. It was a bit of a contest as well because people would, would I think, believe phone in back then. Um, okay. And, yeah. uh, you know, we were up against uh, four or five other bands throughout the States. And even though we didn't win, interestingly enough, the, the first sort of call in of people after they showed all the videos uh, had us, you know, way ahead of the other four bands, which, and the other four bands were mm-hmm. great. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, eventually we lost to a band from New York that kind of caught up with us. Meaning that, you know, probably, you know, and, and, and this, this was, of course, our take, which was a little biased, yeah. meaning, that, you know, that eventually their fans kind of just kept calling over and over again, right? Where we had that okay, initial yeah. push uh, yeah. from, uh, from people in the States. And, and that also, I think, to the record company was an indicator as well that, okay, well, you know, people like this initially first, but, um, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, that's always a good sign that said they made the best uh, first impression. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.